Okay, uh, so just to start off with a brief overview of what we're going to talk about today. We are going to explore the principles underlying oxygen transport in the blood and in the muscle. And we're going to talk about the role of myoglobin and hemoglobin. And we're also going to talk about the effect of body temperature, pH, and a compound known as 2,3-DPG. So these are the three things that dictate oxygen transport during exercise. The second effect we're going to talk about is how CO2 is transported in the blood. And then we're going to look at some specific exercise responses that are related to ventilation. So we'll look at the uh, partial pressure of oxygen, the PO2, the partial pressure of carbon dioxide, the PCO2, and we'll also look at ventilation. A fourth effect we'll look at is exercise-induced hypoxemia as a consequence of uh, aerobic exercise training. And finally, we'll conclude looking at some factors within the respiratory system that uh, limit exercise performance. When you look at oxygen transport in the blood, the majority of the oxygen that the body has is uh, transported on the hemoglobin molecule. And essentially, when hemoglobin has oxygen bound to it, it's referred to as oxyhemoglobin. So, for instance, when blood enters your lungs, the hemoglobin in the blood picks up oxygen from the air that you inhale, and that, oxygen, that hemoglobin becomes oxyhemoglobin. That's then circulated back to the muscle, where the oxygen is removed, and when the oxygen is removed from hemoglobin, it is referred to as deoxyhemoglobin. Deoxyhemoglobin. So essentially hemoglobin with no oxygen bound. The most effective way to look at oxygen transport from the lungs to the skeletal muscle is to look at something called the oxyhemoglobin uh, saturation curve. And uh, initially we'll look at the curve and talk about how it, how's it, how it explains how oxygen is transported to the skeletal muscle. And then when we get to the exercise responses, we'll talk about some things that change during exercise which alter the, uh, the shape of the curve. Same thing. I'll show you a second. It's essentially the same thing. Dissociation, saturation. So this is the saturation or dissociation curve for hemoglobin. And uh, the way you read this graph is instead of reading left to right like you would on a, a, a typical graph, you actually read right to left. And if you look at the blue line, the blue line is oxygen, essentially uh, hemoglobin bound to oxygen. And if you look at the top right, you can see that um, in the arteries, there is about a, almost 100% saturation of uh, oxyhemoglobin. So that means that of the hemoglobin in your bloodstream, 100% of it is, has oxygen bound to it. That's in arterial blood. And then you can see if you move to the left, as the blood moves to different types of vessels, the saturation of hemoglobin changes. And the, there's another line that's marked on here around 40 millimeters of mercury or of oxygen. 
that's the approximate uh, oxygen content of venous blood. And when there is 40 millimeters of mercury of oxygen in the venous blood, that translates to about 78% saturation. All right, so what that means is now we've gone, we have arterial blood, it's 100% saturated, and we've gone, we've gone through the body, we're now in the venous system, and that blood only has 78% saturation, which effectively means that 22% of that oxygen that was in the blood is now somewhere else, not in the blood. The only thing that's between the arteries and the veins is the capillaries and more specifically the skeletal muscle. So that 22% oxygen has been basically taken up by the skeletal muscle. If you look at the, this graph, it actually has two axes. So the, the axis I've been talking about primarily is the, the primary axis, which is on the left, the primary y-axis. There's also a secondary y-axis that says the actual amount of oxygen you have in the blood. And you can see that when you have 100% saturation in the arterial blood, you have about 20 mils of oxygen per 100 mils of blood. And when you go down to 78% saturation in the venous blood, you only have about 15 mils of oxygen per 100 mils of blood, which effectively means the difference between those two is how much has been offloaded the tissue. The, these numbers are what's used to, to calculate the AVO2 difference as well, which we talked about last time when we were discussing VO2. So any questions about what's going on here? So this is just to show how, or essentially shows what the oxygen content is of arterial blood and how that changes as the blood passes through the circulatory system. And the difference between the two is being accounted for by what's being taken up by skeletal muscle. And certainly this response is indicative of what you'd see in a resting individual. So pretty much as you sit here just doing nothing at rest, then um, this is what the response would look like. And that response does change in response to exercise. So any questions about this? All right, so I just mentioned hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is the structure which carries oxygen in the bloodstream. But there's another structure that carries and holds oxygen in the muscle cell, and that's called myoglobin. And structurally, if you look at the two proteins, uh, hemoglobin has, uh, there's different things, terms you can use to describe proteins, but one is related to subunits. And if you look at hemoglobin, it actually has four subunits. There's four pieces to it. And right in the center of those four pieces is iron. And iron is the key to the binding of oxygen to hemoglobin. And each of those four subunits binds an oxygen molecule. And they bind oxygen in such a way that if you expose an, um, a hemoglobin molecule with no oxygen bound to it and you bind an oxygen to it, it increases the likelihood that that oxygen will then bind to the second subunit, the third subunit, and the fourth subunit. So it effectively, in, as you bind oxygen, it increases the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen. If you look at myoglobin on the flip side, if you basically took two of the subunits from hemoglobin, that would be the myoglobin molecule. The big difference between myoglobin and hemoglobin is how they respond to um, oxygen saturation. And the curve we just saw for hemoglobin is beneficial because that facilitates offloading of oxygen at the tissue. But you have a very different response when you're looking at myoglobin because you want myoglobin to absorb oxygen, but you don't want it to, uh, to give it up quite as easily. And that's what this next graph will demonstrate. 
All right, so this, uh, this dissociation curve, uh, there's the line is on there for hemoglobin that we just looked at. And then there's a second line for myoglobin. And basically, the difference between the two is how freely oxygen can leave the molecule. And in hemoglobin, it's much easier for hemoglobin to give up the oxygen when it gets to the skeletal muscle. However, if you look at myoglobin, basically, regardless of what the amount of oxygen is that's in the blood, so the PO2 on the bottom, regardless of that value, myoglobin has roughly the same saturation level. So, for instance, if you present the muscle with uh, blood which has 100 millimeters of mercury of oxygen, it's going to be a, myoglobin will be 100% saturated. If you present it with 80, it's still going to be 100% saturated. If you present it with 60, 100% saturated. If you present it with 40, 100% saturated. And then when you get below 40, that's when you start to have some problems. But the bottom line is, uh, the reason that this is the case is because essentially regardless of how much oxygen you supply to the muscle from hemoglobin, you want myoglobin to be 100% saturated. So when would... When would that ever be a problem? Well, for instance, if you look at somebody exercising at sea level, it's really not a problem. So you're exercising, really, the amount of oxygen available to your muscles isn't a limiting factor. And for the most part, unless you have some sort of pathological disorder, the arterial blood will always uh, be pretty close to 100% saturated and will always have an oxygen content of around 100 millimeters of mercury. However, if you had somebody that was, uh, had some chronic condition of the respiratory tract where they couldn't properly ventilate air, they may have less oxygen in their arterial blood. And the way this arrangement is set up, even though that's the case, myoglobin will still remain 100% saturated. In terms of elite athletes, if you took an elite athlete who lives at sea level and you move them immediately to 15,000 meters of altitude, and you made them exercise, there's going to be a lot less oxygen in the air they're breathing in. That means that the oxygen content of the arterial blood will drop, but based on the nature of this relationship, myoglobin will still remain 100% saturated. So essentially what that means, what the relationship between these two, two molecules is, is that they're not related at all. And uh, hemoglobin is designed to supply however much oxygen is there to the skeletal muscle, <coughs> And myoglobin is designed to be 100% saturated with oxygen, regardless of how much oxygen is being supplied to it. And like I said, for the most part, if you look at exercise at sea level, that's really not an issue. Uh, really, you're going to only have an issue if you have an elite athlete who's performing at altitude, or you have uh, somebody who has some sort of pathological condition within the respiratory tract. Any questions about myoglobin and hemoglobin? We'll look at these some more in a little while. Okay, so that's the basis for how hemoglobin provides oxygen to the muscle at rest. But there are, there's some things that happen during exercise which change uh, the relationship between oxygen and hemoglobin. The first is related to changes in body temperature. And hopefully this statement, ho hopefully you've all got this statement um, by now. If not, then you need to... Um, Definitely study before the final. Um, essentially, if you look at exercise, the key to exercise is that it increases the body's demand for ATP. The higher the intensity of exercise, the greater the ATP demand will be. 
This increase in ATP demand translates to an increase in metabolic rate, and since the body's metabolic systems are relatively inefficient, it increases the, uh, the accumulation of entropy in the form of heat, which increases body temperature. When you increase temperature, that reduces the bond strength between hemoglobin and oxygen. Uh, this means that uh, while oxygen will still bind hemoglobin, the bond strength between the two is weakened. And that means that it's easier for the hemoglobin to give up oxygen at the skeletal muscle, which effectively means more oxygen is, is offloaded at the level of the skeletal muscle. So decrease in bond strength translates to an increase in O2 extraction at the tissue level. And again, if we're talking about exercise, that tissue we're talking about is skeletal muscle. A second effect is related to uh, changes in pH, which is often referred to as the Bohr effect. And in this effect, heavy exercise dramatically increases hydrogen ion content. And as a result, there is a reduction in pH. Whenever you have a reduction in pH, you have a decrease in bond strength between hemoglobin and oxygen, which has the same effect as body temperature and decrease or increases O2 extraction at the tissue level. And again, in an in, uh, individual exercising, that tissue that we're interested in is active skeletal muscle. So these are just two consequences that occur as a result of exercise or contraction of skeletal muscle. And they translate to an increase in the supply of oxygen to the tissue and more importantly, the removal of CO2. And we'll look at the, we're gonna look at those processes some more in just a moment. So any questions, what's going on with these two things? So I have a couple graphs for each one here. This, uh, this graph demonstrates the uh, the change in the oxyhemoglobin saturation curve at some different temp body temperatures. And the line right in the middle for 37 degrees Celsius, that's approximately normal body temperature. Uh, so that's normal body temperature. To the left is a reduction in body temperature, and to the right is an increase in body temperature. So during exercise, we would always expect the curve to shift to the right. Uh, so in this case, they show a temperature of 42 degrees Celsius, although it's um, pretty unlikely that you could safely get somebody to a temperature, a core temperature of 42 degrees Celsius. But nonetheless, uh, you can see that the curve shifts to the right. And what, is that, what that means is that um, at a given point on that graph, the, if you looked at the venous blood, the, the location the venous blood would be at, if it was around 78% saturated um, at rest at 37 degrees Celsius, you might find that it's only 72% saturated or 68% saturated with heavy exercise. And if the saturation is less, the only reason that could be the case is because more oxygen is being taken at the skeletal muscle. So basically, the curve shifts to the right. That means more oxygen being offloaded at the tissue and uh, resultant reduction in venous O2 saturation. If you look at the effects of pH, they actually end up being very, very similar. 
And so again, three lines. The line right in the center is uh, a pH of 7.4, which is the normal body pH, normal muscle pH. And then uh, with heavy exercise, the pH could drop to around 7.2. Uh, while still a neutral pH, it is more acidic than 7.4. And that reduces the bond strength between oxygen and hemoglobin. And again, if we looked at the venous blood, at rest, the venous blood was about 78% saturated. With this type of effect, you could expect that it might drop down to 72% or 68%. And then really what happens during exercise is both of these factors are at work. And since both of them are at work, you get further reductions in venous O2 saturation. And all that really means is that uh, the lower the venous O2 saturation is, the more oxygen that's being taken up by the skeletal muscle which is really what you're trying to achieve because in order to make ATP at a certain rate with aerobic energy systems, you have to be able to supply all the things to make that ATP. And one of the things you have to supply is oxygen. Okay. So any questions about body temperature pH? The third component that uh, alters oxyhemoglobin saturation is uh, 2,3-DPG or 2,3-diphosphoglycerate. And for those of you who memorized all the pieces of glycolysis, um, this is the same molecule that's in glycolysis. And I'll explain to you why that's the case in just a moment. The reason that's the case is if you look at, my, if you look at the red blood cells, the red blood cells, they have no nuclei and they really have no mitochondria. And since they have neither of those structures, the only way they make ATP is with anaerobic glycolysis. And that's a pretty important point because there's a reason why they don't have mitochondria. And that reason is that if they had mitochondria, they could make ATP using oxygen and they would potentially use up what they're being put in place to transport. So it's, uh, it's an uh, inherent design in the way that the cells work. When you look at the, the process of forming lots of ATP via anaerobic glycolysis, one byproduct that you get in red blood cells is this 2,3-DPG. When you look at someone who's exercising at sea level, there's very little effect of 2,3-DPG. Uh, in most cases, it doesn't really change a whole lot, if any. However, when you take somebody and you have them exercise at high altitude and they're not acclimated to high altitude, that puts a lot of stress on the red blood cells. They have to make more ATP via anaerobic glycolysis to perform their normal functions. And in doing so, that increases the amount of 2,3-DPG you have. When you do that, 2,3-DPG uh, weakens the interaction between oxygen and hemoglobin, and that causes the extraction of oxygen at the skeletal muscle. So very similar to the effect seen with temperature and pH, just a different set of circumstances under which it's mediated. What? Just that the that exercising at altitude when you're unacclimated causes an increase in stress on the red blood cells, which requires them to make more ATP, and in doing so, they make more of this 2,3-DPG. 
and then as that accumulates, it affects the, the bond strength between hemoglobin and oxygen, such that uh, you have more extraction of oxygen at the tissue level. All right, so that's how oxygen is transported. The, uh, the other piece of the equation is how CO2 is transported because at the same time that the oxygen is being dumped at the tissue, the blood is also taking up CO2 and, trans and moving that back to the lungs so it can be removed. The first way that CO2 can be carried is bound to the hemoglobin molecule. And uh, when carbon dioxide is bound to the hemoglobin molecule, it's called carbaminohemoglobin, and about 20% of the CO2 your blood carries is bound onto hemoglobin. Um, uh, an interesting side note, the, uh, the bond strength between CO2 and hemoglobin is a little bit stronger than the bond strength is between oxygen and hemoglobin. And the bond strength between carbon monoxide in, and hemoglobin is something like 100 times that of oxygen and hemoglobin. And that's why if you're exposed to carbon monoxide poisoning, that's why it kills you because this carbon monoxide, the hemoglobin prefers the carbon monoxide and it binds that and doesn't bind oxygen and essentially your body suffocates because it can't get oxygen to the important tissues. About 10% of the, of the total CO2 is dissolved in the blood plasma. So this always makes me think of oxygenated water, um, which I don't think is very popular anymore. But um, I used, whenever I saw that, I'd always ask, usually the people that tried to sell it to me, I knew they had no clue what they were talking about. Because they'd say, oh, well, we just take water, regular water, and we filter it, and then we just dissolve oxygen in it. And you really can't dissolve oxygen into water. Well, you can, but the second you open the cap, it all goes out because it doesn't like to be in solution. And then they, you know, oh no, it's actually bound to the water molecule. Oh, so it's bound to the water molecule. So it's actually H2O2. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I said, no, that's hydrogen peroxide. It's not bound to the wa water molecule. So the, the, you know, the key thing is that certainly it's always uh, useful to be skeptical of anything that you, you think doesn't really make a lot of sense. And that's a, a very good example. But 10% of CO2 is dissolved in blood plasma. The remaining 70% of hemoglobin is carried via the bicarbonate system. And uh, we've talked about the bicarbonate system before, it's just been a while. And the last time we talked about bicarbonate, we talked about its role in buffering the acid part of lactic acid or pyruvic acid. So to remind you how this would work in the case of CO2, you would have CO2 combining with water in the blood, and then that would form carbonic acid, which would dissociate into hydrogen ions and bicarbonate. And then that would be circulated to the lungs, and then when it gets in the lungs, this process would be run in reverse. So you'd bind uh, the hydrogen ion with uh, bicarbonate, you would form carbonic acid, and then dissociate that to water and CO2. The water can be used by the body, and then the CO2 is exhaled. So that's effectively the way that you get rid of it.
Okay, so if we turn our attention now and we look at some of the ventilatory changes that occur during exercise, uh, on this graph, uh, although it's nearly impossible to see, that says uh, VE on the y-axis in liters per minute, so that's expired ventilation in liters per minute. And on the x-axis is ex exercise duration in minutes. And when you look at somebody completing uh, a fixed intensity submaximal exercise, so something less than the VO2 max, you see a response similar to everything that we've looked at so far. So a nice steady state type of response where the individual starts out at a certain level of ventilation at rest, they increase to a certain amount, and then they plateau. And that's consistent with a steady state response to submaximal exercise. This uh, response is being driven by a couple of, of factors. One is the receptors which are located in the central and peripheral chemoreceptors. And essentially these are, the central chemoreceptors are located in the hypothalamus and the peripheral chemoreceptors are located in the aortic and carotid bodies, which are basically a massive nervous tissue that's in the aorta and in the carotid arteries. And these, uh, these sensors detect uh, three things. They detect uh, CO2, they detect uh, hydrogen ion concentration, and they detect O2 concentration in that order, in order of importance. And the primary mechanism driving breathing during rest is um, CO2 concentration. And there's plenty of ways to demonstrate that. If you've ever taken a basic physiology lab, one of the easiest ways to demonstrate it is if you make yourself force hyperventilate, that significantly lowers the CO2 concentration in your bloodstream. And if you don't think about breathing, you will not breathe until that CO2 level gets back to a certain point. So and effectively, when you look at someone exercising at sea level, oxygen content in the blood isn't an issue unless the person has some sort of pathological condition. So really, the two driving factors here for this change in ventilation are a change in CO2 concentration and a change in uh, hydrogen ion concentration. A second factor contributing to the change in ventilation is feedback that the body gets from skeletal muscle. And this feedback could come in the form of um, information about the ATP levels that are in the cell, or it could be things that are coming from the mechanoreceptors. So it could be some signals that are coming from the Golgi tendon organ or the muscle spindle. If you look at the maximal response, so for instance, if you took someone in the lab and you just uh, set the intensity to something that you know they couldn't do for a, long, for a very long period of time, then they would start to exercise, and as they exercise, they would expect this type of curvilinear increase in uh, ventilation, such that the higher the intensity is, the harder that the exercise is, the higher the ventilation will go. So there's essentially a linear relationship between ventilation and uh, exercise intensity. All right, so again, you know, keep in mind that the, during exercise, the key stimuli driving breathing rate is the concentration of carbon dioxide and the concentration of hydrogen ions. Uh, the carbon dioxide concentration is really important because it binds hemoglobin better than oxygen does. And if you accumulate too much CO2 in the bloodstream, you basically block the, abilities, the body's ability to deliver oxygen. And in blocking that ability, that's going to compromise performance. So any, any questions about what's going on here? 
The, during submaximal type of exercise, the key driving factors are carbon dioxide and hydrogen ions. When you look at the type of maximal exercise response that the green line demonstrates, then the, one of the key, the, probably the most important factor contributing to that change is hydrogen ion concentration. Because there's a pretty good chance that if you pick a maximal intensity of exercise, it's going to maximally elicit changes in the aerobic system but it's also going to elicit changes in the anaerobic system. And you're going to have a massive increase in hydrogen ion concentration as well as um, the changes in CO2. And one, thing, one way, there's lots of ways that you can determine whether or not an exercise test to get the maximal VO2 is correct. But one way, that it, one benchmark that's used time and time again is to look at the respiratory exchange ratio. So, for instance, uh, if you're using 100% carbon dioxide or 100% carbohydrate to make ATP, the RER should be 1.0. But if you look at people that do maximal exercise tests, the RER could reach 1.2 or 1.3 or 1.4. And what that would suggest is that there is essentially more CO2 that's being produced than oxygen that's being used. Well, how would that be the case? Well, it's because of the bicarbonate reaction that I showed on the previous slide. And namely, just like that reaction can be used to buffer and carry CO2 in the bloodstream, if you're using, if you have an intensity of exercise which is uh, basically recruiting fast twitch muscle fibers, you're going to be producing massive amounts of hydrogen ions. And when that gets in the bloodstream, it will get converted into carbon dioxide in the lungs, and then you'll get, you'll exhale that. So essentially you can effectively, it appears at the systemic level that you are making more carbon dioxide than oxygen you're using. If you looked at the individual cell and you just looked at oxygen going in and CO2 going out, that RER value would never exceed 1.0. So it could never exceed 1.0. The only reason that you measure one above 1.0 at the systemic level is because of these changes in hydrogen ions being brought about by fast twitch muscle fibers. Does that make sense to anyone? Is anybody still awake? All right, so let's look at uh, PO2, PCO2, and ventilation a bit more. And on the x-axis uh, to the left of the yellow line is the resting response, and to the right of the yellow line is the exercise response. If we look first at uh, PO2, for the most part, PO2 is uh, very stable in the arterial blood. And the PO2 is always right around uh, 100 millimeters of mercury. Um, in some individuals, at the start of exercise, oxygen saturation might slightly drop, but it's really not going to be a very noticeable drop. The only way that you're really going to get a noticeable drop in arterial oxygen saturation is if there's physically something wrong with the individual's respiratory system or you make them exercise at altitude. And then you can see, definitely see drops in oxygen saturation. You see a very similar response for venous PO2 concentration and, or PCO2 concentration. It usually sits right around 40 millimeters of mercury and uh, it may slightly increase immediately at the onset of exercise, but it usually re resumes back to uh, resting levels fairly quickly. 
In most individuals, these responses are so fast that uh, you, it's, it's often you can't even measure them. Uh, it, so when you actually make your measurements, it looks like they never changed. And finally, if we look at ventilation, at rest, the ventilation is somewhere around 10 liters of air per minute. And uh, with certain intensities of, of exercise, it could exceed 25 liters of air per minute. So the, the I'm sorry, the use of blue here, um, that should say VE ventilation, expired <laughs> ventilation. So there's lots of ways you can measure expired ventilation. Uh, there's uh, really fancy devices called uh, pneumatax, which are essentially an electrical screen. And you can force a volume of air through there. And de depending on how much this, the screen moves, it translates that to an actual value. Uh, one uh, technique that's been used for a very long time to measure uh, <coughs> CO2 or measure ventilation is to use something called a dry gas meter, which um, effectively a dry gas meter is the same thing as a gas meter that you may have on your house. It looks exactly like that. And the way that uh, that gas meter on your house works is it has uh, essentially a plume inside it that's attached to a pendulum. And as the gas goes through there, it turns it and it records a value. And you can do the same thing with expired air. So uh, you can actually, uh, there's lots of ways you can collect expired air. Uh, I remember I've, I've done lots of studies in the past where we, um, instead of using a traditional metabolic cart where we had the air just go through the metabolic cart and give us numbers, we collected bag after bag after bag of uh, expired respiratory air. And usually what we'd use is uh, like a meteorologic balloon and you hook it up to a mouthpiece and then the person during exercise, they breathe out into the bag. And so if you did multiple stages of exercise, you could easily end up with um, tons of these bags of air. Also, the, uh, that method's pretty useful if you wanted to measure oxygen consumption during swimming performance. And there's actually uh, an e equation that we've used previously that uh, essentially if you had somebody swim a really hard uh, event in the pool, they can hold their breath for the last 15 seconds, come up. You can hold a, a mask to their mouth. They can hyperventilate into that, uh, basically into that bag, expired air into the bag for a period of like 30 seconds. And then we can measure that in the lab and we can tell what their oxygen consumption was during uh, the actual swim performance. So again, all of these responses are indicative of uh, fixed intensity, steady state type of responses. Certainly if you looked at um, really PCO2 and, and PO2, they don't have a steady state response. They respond the same way at rest as they do to exercise. And that's an important note, point to note because if, for instance, PO2 dropped as exercise intensity increased, that would be bad because it would essentially mean that the body can't supply oxygen at the same rate, which has all kinds of implications for cardiac output and ventilation and, and so on and so forth. Um, this graph is meant to show the relationship between PO2 and PCO2 and expired air as it relates to uh, expired ventilation. And on the, the y-axis here, we have PCO2 in millimeters of mercury, and we have ventilation in liters per minute. And essentially, the greater the ventilation that you have, the more CO2 that you will have in that air. 
The more volume that you ventilate on a per minute basis, the more CO2 you can effectively move out of the body. If we add another uh, graph here, and we, we, measure, we look now at PO2 concentration in the expired air, there is the opposite relationship in um, PO2. So if you look at PO2 in the expired air, the greater the ventilatory rate, the lower the amount of PO2 there is in the expired air. So what does this mean in a term that you might understand? It means that the faster you breathe, the better job your body does at getting CO2 out of the body and getting O2 into the body. So at low, low rates of ventilation, you're leaving a lot of the oxygen behind that's in the, the air, and you're not getting a sufficient amount of carbon dioxide out. And then as you increase your ventilation, you're progressively getting more oxygen into the body, and you're getting more CO2 out. The, uh, you could very easily on this graph replace ventilation with exercise duration and you'd see the same kind of response if it was related to an increase in exercise intensity. So for, a, for an increase in exercise intensity, you're going to have an increase in ventilation and a change in these uh, measurements. So any questions about what's going on here? All right, this leads us to uh, talk a little bit about exercise-induced hypoxemia. And essentially what exercise-induced hypoxemia is, is A, it's not a good thing. It means that as a result of exercise training, there is a drop in arterial PO2 concentration. And in some individuals, when they train, uh, this will happen. And it's not a good thing. During exercise, it can actually compromise uh, exercise capacity. The current data suggests that somewhere between 40 and 50% of male athletes, uh, male aerobic type of athletes, that, are, that are, go on a very intense training program are likely to develop exercise-induced hypoxemia. Uh, in comparison, anywhere from the estimates suggest anywhere from 25 to 51 percent of female athletes that undergo a, a similar high-intensity training program can also expect to develop exercise-induced hypoxemia. And, and like I said, this is definitely not a beneficial adaptation. It's actually a consequence of too much training. Um, the exact cause underlining this effect isn't completely understood, but there are some people that have some speculations as to why it occurs. And one believed cause is related to a disruption of the ventilation perfusion ratio. So I, I'm, I think we talked about this last time when we talked about um, cardiovascular responses. But essentially what this is, is it's a ratio of VE, which we've been talking about, expired ventilation, to um, cardiac output. And the idea is that at the exact time that the heart is pumping blood, you want oxygen, you want air to be in the lungs. And to some extent during exercise, there's a fairly good match between when blood leaves the heart and when air is in the lungs. 
And the closer those are in sync, the better job the body does of getting oxygen out of the air. However, in some individuals, the more they exercise, for some reason, they don't get a lot of change in their respiratory system, and they get significant adaptation in the, in the cardiovascular system, which now means that the blood gets to the lungs and there's no air. It has to wait for a few milliseconds, and then the air gets there and then the blood's gone. So effectively, it decreases the amount of time that the air, the atmospheric air is exposed to the blood, thus de decreasing the amount of oxygen that can be taken from the air into the blood. And the net effect of doing that is you have a drop in O2 saturation in the arterial blood, which is consistent with a hypoxic response. Oh, God, that's terrible. Um, so this, uh, this basically repeats what I just said, and it's that uh, an increase in cardiac output reduces tissue transit time or transit time of red blood cells in the capillary, which translates to a reduction in O2 extraction. And here I mentioned a reduction in O2 extraction at the tissue level, but that can occur in the lungs or the tissue. So effectively, changing cardiac output changes the way that you get oxygen from the lungs, and it also changes the way that oxygen is being delivered to the tissue. So as I said, you know, the, the hypoxic response is certainly not a desirable adaptation. It's a consequence of training in some individuals. All right, so what are some of the specific adaptations you can have in response to training? Uh, one of the primary improvements as a result of aerobic training is an improvement in pH control. And essentially what you find is that there is a, a smooth, slow decline in pH instead of a fast decline in pH. And I'm going to go through and, and mention each of these now with words, and then I have a graph that will demonstrate what the responses look like. Some of the potential causes for an improvement in blood pH control are related to a decrease in blood lactate at a given exercise intensity after training. So as the aerobic systems become more trained, they become re less reliant on fast twitch muscle fibers. That translates to a reduction in lactic acid. Also, as you become more trained, you have an increased removal of CO2 from the lungs. And as such, you have um, effectively a greater ability to remove acid that may be produced by slow or fast twitch fibers. A second effect that you can have in response to exercise training is an increase in the ventilatory threshold. And previously we've talked about...